0: Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on The Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, Venture, it's hard to believe that uh, three weeks from today is Easter morning. I mean, we're that close, we're in that season. And and as Charles said, I love this time of year. I love what we get to celebrate. And I love that we have the opportunity to, to share with others who may not know that God is for them. And they need to hear the message of what Christ did for them so that they can experience that. And so I, I just encourage you, if you know someone that maybe is far from God, someone who's never experienced that, th- this is that perfect time of year. Be thinking now who you could invite so they could hear that good news. It's a great opportunity with that. Also want to encourage everybody... If you've not been baptized, that baptism service in a couple of weeks and and in the worship service with that, be a great time to do that. I I talked to a lot of people. In fact, I had somebody this week, he asked me, he said, how old are you too old to get baptized? I said, well, you're never too old. He said, and and kind of clarified, he said, yeah, but if you've been a Christian for a long time and I put it off and, and as I told him, there's no expiration date. There's there's not this point that somebody looks at it and and some of you, you're here and there's part of you that wants to get baptized and there's something that keeps you from it. It's like that, oh, I should have done it years ago, or I'd kind of embarrassed that I haven't, or uh, any of the different things. I promise you this, no one in this room is thinking any of those things. Everyone in this room will be celebrating with you. And, and I have never in all my years of ministry, I've never had someone who say, said to me, oh, I regret getting baptized. But I have had many, many people say to me, oh, I regret that I put it off for so long. I don't know why I did that. And so I just encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, th- that little QR code right there on your seat, you can take your phone, just take a picture of it there. You can sign up for more information. Doesn't mean you're signing up for it but we'd love for you to be a part to take that next step in it. Today, we are back in the book of James. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn to James chapter two, James chapter two. And in it, we are in a, a great passage. And this, the thing I love about James, he's so straightforward. He just cuts to the point and you never have to wonder what he's really getting at. It's one of the reasons it's such a powerful book. And in James two, he dives in Dressing the church, he says, "'My brothers, show no partiality "'as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, "'the Lord of glory. "'For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing "'comes into your assembly, "'and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, "'and if you pay attention to the one "'who wears the fine clothing and say, "'you sit here in the good place, "'while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, and I'm gonna just stop it there because he's just given this tension of this moment of if you saw a scene like that playing out in church, how would you feel? Now, James is probably not making up this scenario like, oh, I wonder if this has happened. This is probably something he's actually seen. Remember, he's in the church, he's in the church in Jerusalem and he sees how this plays out. And and right out of the gate, he says, you can't hold this partiality and your faith at the same time. And so if you look at the command that he's given us, I told you he's straightforward. Here's the command he's telling all of us, don't show favoritism or preference to one person or group over others. Don't show favoritism. And, and he describes one form of favoritism, but favoritism or partiality, it could be based on prejudice, could be based on nationality, could be based on socioeconomics, could be based on race. Did you show favor to one race over the other? In in all of those forms, he just says that doesn't work in the church. There's no place for that here. Now he gives the example of it. And what he's talking about, he says, when you come into the place of worship, and he's probably describing, they would often use the synagogue as a place of worship or a place of teaching. And a synagogue was usually just a room and it would have sometimes a couple of benches. That's about it. A lot of people would stand or sit on the floor, and then a few places on the bench. And he says, so you picture this synagogue, the churches come together, they're meeting in that, and in walks a rich man. And and as he describes it, he says he's got gold on his finger. And it may be many gold. A lot of times people back then, you didn't have a bank account, you, you wore your wealth. And so he's wearing some bling." I mean, everybody sees it. And then even the clothes, he he says his clothes are are glowing, kinda he's dripping. I mean, he's got it all. He walks in and everybody sees it and you just know, man, this is somebody. Now we gotta remember back in that time period, there was no middle class. There wasn't scales of wealth like we have now. You can kinda get to the next level left. In fact, the majority, over 80% of the Roman world were poor. And so were poor, and you didn't have that. And then you had one class and then kind of that upper class that really had this kind of wealth. And, and so a person like this is rare. And when they walked in the assembly, I mean, it's almost like the celebrity sighting. And they see him, and, and so you picture it, they're coming in and, and immediately the church goes, oh, oh, we can't have him sitting on the floor. He can't stand, so they go over to this poor person. Hey, you, get up. You stand over there, you can sit over there and have him sit down. I mean, we've got to take care of our distinguished guest. Now you, you hear that, I mean, I don't know about you, but there's something about you, you go, man, that story rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? And yet at a core level, and especially in our culture, I mean, you can see this kind of favoritism play out. At a fleshly level, we can kind of play this out. And maybe, you know, in our culture, because we have such gradiated scales of wealth with that, maybe that's not our issue as much. I, where I see this play out the most for us is, it's not so much wealth today, it's fame. If you have fame, if you have followers, if you're famous with that, man, that is the greatest leverage that you have in our culture. If you're a celebrity, and, and be honest with yourself, I mean, if you saw center doors open up and a huge celebrity walk through, and came down and sat right here in the front row. You'd probably be like, "Oh, look, look, look at him over there!" I mean, we do that. We have the celebrity sightings. There's a natural part of that. I, I, I'm not against that. It's when you start treating people different based on it, especially within the church. I, I remember several years ago. There's a friend of mine. They live in Little Rock. He, he, he's he's an actor, and he was in a bunch of big movies in the '80s, '90s, mainly. He does more production work now with it, and still acts some. But uh, you know, great guy, great story of how he came to Christ at the height of fame. God rescued him out of alcoholism when he came to Christ. It's a great redemption story. But it's, it's always interesting when you see people interact around. In fact, the first time I was meeting him and having dinner with him, it wasn't in, in Little Rock. It was in L.A. Now I was in L.A. I was at a pastor's conference, and we were meeting for a dinner. And there's a project he was working on around that, and so. You know, I'm kind of excited you're gonna meet this person. And we get to the restaurant and, and the server host guy is, is like, he keeps trying to put us like near the bar area, these stand up tables and all that. And, and finally I said to him, hey, we're really, for our group, we're gonna need a table down on the floor down there, downstairs with it. And then he kind of gives a skeptical look and he goes, I know what you're doing. You're just trying to get near so-and-so, he listed the actor. You're just trying to get a table near him, aren't you? And I said, oh, is he here? He goes, you knew he was here. I said, actually, we're in his party. We're supposed to be at his table. And the guy went, he kind of gave this skeptical look, and then he got this horrified look. And I was amazing how his perception of us and his treatment of us changed on a dime. I mean, we went from this, you know, you can sit over there to right this way, sir, come right down. I remember we sat down and he goes, can I bring you anything, sir? I'm like a barf bag because this is, uh." And I go, "What, what is it about us that like even the perception that you're with that changes how we treat people? And, and, and James, when he, he comes to the church, he goes, man, church is not the place for that. I'll be honest, I think one of the worst things that's happened to the evangelical church in the last 20 years, we've turned pastors into celebrities. And you see all that and they're dripping and wearing all the stuff and known and platform and all that stuff with it. And I think James would look at it and go, <laughs> bring me a barf bag. You guys are not that important. You serve a role, that's it. In the kingdom of God. See, see James is, is either seen this or he knows this about it and he just goes to the heart of it. He said, you, you can't do that. And Let me tell you why. He's gonna give us three reasons why. First one, favoritism is inconsistent with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that in that first verse. He says, you can't hold on to a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and hold on to this junk and treating people this way. It's just inconsistent with that. Look how he said in verse four. He says, if you do that, you treat a person like that. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You're judging people. You're making distinctions. And notice where he says, he says, man, that comes from that evil stuff. That's not from Christ. That's not from the Holy Spirit in you. You're immediately judging them and making that distinction. And and so he says, we're judging people based on our flesh, not based on our faith. Our flesh is what comes naturally to us. And that's why you see this play out in the world systems all the time. It plays out, I mean, we have these distinctions out there and they they happen all the time. That's why our our culture is so divided in so many different ways. Because it just comes naturally. It's naturally to, to be more around people like me. It's naturally to just, group up with that. It's naturally anybody that disagrees with me or they're, they're a different party than me or all these things to pull back from them. He says, but you look at them and you make those distinctions, that's not coming out of a heart of faith. That's coming out of flesh. And you're, you're judging with what you can see. And, and it's, it's the condition of all humanity we do that. I remember when Samuel, remember when God said that he needed a new king for Israel? He sent Samuel, to the house of Jesse. He says, one of Jesse's sons is gonna be the next king. And they start doing the parade. They bring in all the sons. The first son comes in, he's good looking, he's strong. And Samuel's like, that guy has king written all over him. And God says, not that guy. And they bring in the next son and he's sharp and he, you know, he's got all the skills and everything. Samuel's like, there's our man. God says, no. And They just keep going to brother. No, no, no. And finally they're out. And Samuel says, you got anybody else left? And they go, well, <laughs> we got David the youngest, I mean, he's out in the field and he comes walking in and God goes, there's my man. Look what he taught Samuel now, he says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, we, when we look with eyes of flesh, we're looking at the outside in. We look at their wealth, we look at their looks, we look at their influence, we look at all these things that we can evaluate and we go, ooh, that's my evaluation. God says, no, I'm always looking at the heart. And the unique thing about the church is he's brought all of these people together that he has changed us from the inside out. He says, if he's changed you from the inside out, why in the world would you start evaluating people within the church from the outside in? He's put you at this common place that every person who's a part of the church of Jesus Christ All of us had to go to level ground at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter where you started with, we all are at that same place in Christ. He says, if if, if you've done that, you you can't hold on to a faith in Christ like that and evaluate in this way. Second reason he says, favoritism is inconsistent with the operating principles of the kingdom of God. It's just, it's totally inconsistent with how God set up his kingdom. And so, so you can't make those distinctions in his kingdom. He's brought people from all over. Now, as I say this, because sometimes you start talking about this and, and you go, wait, Tim, are you saying that I shouldn't appreciate my culture? I shouldn't appreciate where I'm from. I shouldn't appreciate. We have celebrations as a people and different groups with that and my family and all the parts with that. He's not saying that we just get rid of all distinctions. In fact, it's one of the things I love living in the Bay Area and I love being a part of Venture. We have people from all over the world and different cultures and people. And the reality of that is all of us are created in the image of God. And so you're a reflection of that image. And it takes all people, all cultures, all groups to fully represent the beauty of our God. That's why I love in Revelation 7, it says around his throne, there's going to be every people and tongue and tribe and nationality that are gathered there. This redemptive story that he's done across all cultures, but also this mosaic of the beauty of who our God is and the people that were created in his image. So we celebrate those things. We we don't have to pretend like they're not there and we can enjoy those. But what he's saying in that is, instead of those being a place of division, those should be the things that draw us together that much more. That I'm not just celebrating what comes naturally to me. I'm celebrating with you as well. I'm partnering with you. That we, we, in the kingdom of God, look how he says it in verse five through seven. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So he says, just remember back in this church who God chose. And, And you look at it in his kingdom, God purposefully chose the weak and the poor to show his goodness and power. He purposefully looked at it and said, man, I love people, especially those who need it the most. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians. He said, for consider your calling, he's writing to us brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That last line, nobody has a place to brag. Nobody has this place that, oh man, I am a little bit more than anyone else. This is what Paul is describing here. It's so different and the whole kingdom of God is so different from how we approach things. Because if you look at the world today, we love a little exclusivity. You know, when, when you get the opportunity to fly in first class, it's kind of nice when everybody, you know, they're heading on back to old coach, enjoy.
1: You know, they got that little
0: curtain. he's <laughs> you know, like, oh, no class systems except on planes. We, we love being associated with, you know, power or looks. Because part of it is we need it. I mean, think about when you were back in, in the playground. Remember we were in a playground and and like sometimes it was the worst days. You'd be at school and the teacher come out and they hadn't really organized anything. So we're just going to play a game. We'll play dodgeball or kickball or something, you know, with it, basketball. And they picked the two best athletes to be what? The captains. And they stand up there and they start picking back and forth. You know, when you're in middle school and you're sitting there, you know, you're, you're just, you can be praying, Lord, I don't care what else. Just don't let me be last. There's nothing worse than being last because basically you weren't picked. They're stuck with you. You know, they kind of go, through, okay, come on. You're with us. Now, why do we do it that way? We still do it in life. I mean, every company is trying to pick the best. Every person would get the best around us because we need the best. If we're gonna win, if we're gonna succeed, I gotta put together the best team. I gotta get the best talent. I gotta get the best people. We need that to be able to succeed in the world. Here's what I love about God's kingdom. God steps forward and he's establishing his kingdom and he looks at all of humanity and he goes, yeah, I don't need any of them, I'm gonna win. There's nobody he's looking at and go, oh man, I gotta have her, she is so smart. She would be great for the church. Oh, I got to have him. He's rich. He's going to give a lot. Get him in. Got to have him. No. He's God. He's in total control. He has no need. And in fact, when he approached all of us, we were all sinners. Rebels to him. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so he said, yeah, I, I can choose the weak. And I can choose the poor. I can choose the lowly. And and when Paul's using this phrase and these terms, guys, he's talking about all of us. I mean, to to enter into his kingdom, the very start of that life, Jesus says, if you want to experience the blessed life of God's kingdom, blessed is the person who realizes they're poor in spirit. You're, You're bankrupt spiritually. You bring nothing to the table, but God still chose you. And he set his whole kingdom up that way. So James is, is looking at it and he goes, how could church operate any differently? When none of us brought anything to it. See, he says that, God's kingdom's not based on the power dynamics of the current system. He says, don't get caught up in that. And he says, man, you're playing to rich people. Aren't they the ones that take you to court? Aren't they the ones that have given you all that trouble and all that you're experiencing? He says, don't do that. And and what I love in this is just calling it out is the church is so different, the kingdom's so different than any other dynamic with it. Uh, We we live in a world today and we're struggling with these issues. And kind of the solution everybody says is, well, it's all about money and power. And so if you just reallocate the money and power, then that will solve it. And then you got different systems with it and different places and different parties and politics and all with that. I I love how James, he doesn't even get into all that. He just said, can we talk about church and how it's gonna operate here? And that when Jesus called people into his church and his kingdom, See, the unique thing about the kingdom of God, it's not about reallocation and all that. He's like, no, if you have power, if you have wealth, if you have been blessed, in my kingdom, the most powerful people are the ones who serve the most. In my kingdom, the people who are in first place in life, they get to be last. And last get to be first. I just turn the whole thing upside down. In my kingdom, the most powerful guy in the room is the one on his knees washing feet because nobody else wants to do it. But see, in the kingdom of God, it turns it upside down like that. It's always that way. And and, and so when he's looking at us, he says, how could you make church any different than that? See, it's this miracle when we model it that way, guys. The, the world doesn't have that. And, and we have to be honest, it doesn't come naturally to us. It's only through Christ and the Holy Spirit that we can think and operate this way. But when we squander it, we also squander the miracle of what he's done among us. Listen to the words Philip Yancey writes. He says, as I read the accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, would go on to write the words that in the church there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free male, you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says one modern Indian pastor told me most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue bloods can come together. He says, just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly through the sermon. He says, where else are you going to find that kind of mixture? When I walk into a new church, the more its members resemble each other and resemble me, the more uncomfortable I am. I think for each of us, this place needs to represent his kingdom. And so what that means is we want to represent our area. We want to represent the neighborhoods around us. We want to represent the people groups with that. We would want anyone to feel welcome. And I love how that's growing at Venture. But you know, I heard a comment from somebody once, they said, well, you know, a poor person would feel uncomfortable going to Venture. And I said, why? So we've got a lot of people, some are rich and some don't have much. And they go, I don't know that rich church in Los Gatos. And, and as I listen to it, you can kind of get defensive. And then I go, okay, what do we do to break that down? And, and how are we? I mean, just honestly ask ourselves, are we doing anything that would exude that or people would feel that? So that we can, to the best of our ability, display this miracle of what Christ is doing in us. The third reason, he says, is favoritism is inconsistent with the royal law of love. The royal law of love. Look, look how James puts it, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself You are doing well. This term, the royal law of love, it's sometimes called the law of Christ in the New Testament. And it's the culmination when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest of the commandments? Remember what he said? He said, it was real simple. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The two of them together, they're the royal law of love. And James says, hey, if you're not fulfilling the second half of that equation, This love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're doing it, that's good. He says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And you can't just say, I'm doing part of it. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of all of it. But for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the whole law. Now here's what he's describing here. First, all of God's laws can be summarized in loving God and loving others. When Jesus said that commandment, he wasn't throwing out, oh man, the rest of the laws don't count. What he's saying to them is, all of the law was always designed around those two things. It was always, you can look at the the Old Testament law with the children of Israel. the, The laws were either designed to show them how to love God more, or how to treat each other and love others with that. We come into the New Testament in the same way. I mean, you take the 10 commandments, first four Ten commandments are how to love God. Last six, how to love other people. It's all summarized in that. And so James says this royal law of love, all of it is together. And so you're called to love God and you're called to love others. Now, then he puts this point, but, but to fulfill the royal law, you can't do one without doing the other. You can't say I'm good because vertically, man, I'm loving God. Ma'am, God and me, we are great. And you treat people this way. The flip side of it's true. It's interesting when you balance those two things, you go, how do you love God and how do you love others? And I think it's really important to kind of talk about it because love is one of those kind of ooey gooey words or it's used in so many ways in our culture that you can convince yourself. You ask the common person, do you love God? Oh yeah, unless they're anti. But you love God? Yeah. You love other people? Oh, yeah, I'm very loving. But in Scripture, it's not a feeling. So here's what it means. When you say you love God, Jesus was asked, what does it mean to love God? And he was very clear. He says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. It's action with it. You you show obedience to what God's called you to. Now, why does he say that? Because God loves you. And so he gave us his word. He gave us those commandments because he wants us to flourish in life. And so he says, Hey, if we're in this love relationship, the more you draw close to me, I'm going to keep calling you to my word and I want you to obey it because I want you to experience that life. But if you say you love God, there's a trust and an obedience with it. If you say you love others, it's not an emotion. Oh, I just love people. If you read the scripture over and over again, it's action. Where are you serving? Where are you laying down in your life? What are you doing with them? And James says, you got to hold on to both of those. And it's interesting because sometimes you see different expressions, some churches and people, they kind of get defined by one or the other because we're drawn to one or the other, either the vertical or the horizontal. I hear this with some churches in particular, kind of, and you'll see this movement a lot. They would say, man, we are a church that's all about just loving people. Love your neighbors yourself. That's all that Jesus called us to, love others. And, uh, you know, we don't get too worried about doctrine. We don't worry too much theology. And you start seeing some movement, you know, I mean, we're not going to get too caught up on whether the Bible is actually inspired and fallible. And, and we, we don't get too, you know, caught up on the exclusivity of Jesus and, and, and morality and sexuality. God doesn't care about those things. We just, we love others. And James would look at him and go, hmm. You can't split them out like that. In fact, how would you tell people how to flourish in life if you're not calling them to love God the way he calls to it? Now, the flip side of it, and probably the one we're more dangerous of, more in danger of falling into, is churches that are all about, man, we got our doctrine. Man, we we are clear and we are obedient and we're doing these things. And those bad people out there You need to get it right with God, and when you do, get back with me. And James would go, it doesn't work that way. Because the more you love God, the more you love people. And they see that, and they know it, and you're not judging them. You know, you used that word several times, it's not a judgy thing. It's a, a heart that actually moves toward them in this. So how do we do both? Look at this cure at the end. True heart change always begins with the mercy of God. It always begins with mercy. Look how he puts it here. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. You live in a way that law of Christ defines your life. For judgment without mercy to the one who has shown, for judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. You wanna live a merciless life and you judge and you look and you evaluate everybody else according to that, that's a tough place to be. Notice this last line, mercy triumphs over judgment. And this word mercy here is not just like, oh, some pity toward it. it. It's actually at the root of it. It's everything that grace is included in it. And so when he talks about this, he says, as Christians, we remember the mercy of God given to each one of us. Before I ever approach someone else, I remember what God did for me. Before I ever am quick to judge them or look down on them, I remember, oh yeah, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. While while I'm dealing with my junk, even this week and even this day, he always meets me in that place and his mercies are new every morning. You know why he promises that? Because we need his mercies every morning. There'll never be a day that you look up and you go, you know, I'm doing pretty good on my own. You will always need the grace and mercy of God. And so our starting point before we ever interact with anyone else is I always come to that place and I go, oh man, what did he do for me? How did he forgive me? When he had every right to judge me and yet Christ was willing to take on that judgment so that I can experience the mercy of God. And and then he says, we are to lead with mercy instead of judgment. Mercy triumphs judgment. We we are to be the people that instead of looking out and judging them, we look out with mercy toward them. You know, one one of my favorite stories in the gospel, Matthew writes about this guy in Matthew chapter nine. And as Matthew talks about this guy, he said, there was this guy that everyone hated. And they rightfully so, he's pretty despicable dude. And he said, he worked collecting taxes for the Roman empire and just to describe it a little bit because if you knew him then you'd hate him too. A tax collector, what Rome did, they, they really had a smart system. In every country they went to, instead of sending Romans to collect the taxes, they would hire a local. Because they would go, this guy knows the people, he knows where they're hiding their money, he knows what they're doing. And so they would hire a local guy, a Jewish guy in Israel and they go, hey, for this region, you get the local tax shop. And he was a combination of h Block and the revenue office. Because <laughs> they determine what you're supposed to pay and then they collect it as well. And here's how Rome set it up. It's kind of like an independent operation. They would give them the amount we expect from this region. So from this region, we want $10,000 a week, whatever it is. And then you have the liberty to add anything you want on top of that that you think you can collect. So these guys were always putting a healthy margin over and basically exploiting their own people for their gain. Very wealthy guys, very wealthy, despicable. And just think, just for a moment, we're in tax season right now. How would you feel if you mail in your return, you've computed it all, you know what you pay, you either sent the money or it's already been there. How would you feel if the IRS agent calls you and says, hey, yeah, everything here looks like you computed all right, but you're still about 5% short. So I need you to send a check for X amount. And you're like, no way, this is right. And they go, oh yeah, it's a new system, it's my cut. Anybody here, would you be angry? That's how everybody thought about this guy. His name is Matthew, by the way. When Matthew's writing about it, it's autobiographical. And he's sitting there at his tax shop and Jesus walks by and he looks at him and says, hey, why don't you follow me? Why don't you become one of my disciples? And everyone looked at him and go, wow. What are you doing? Jesus, come here, come here. I know you're putting together this weird little group of disciples, (laughs) but but you should at least start with decent people. I mean, this guy is despicable, he's the lowest of the low. And Matthew gets so excited that Jesus invites him, he throws a party. And so he goes to invite everybody. But remember, when you're the lowest of the low, you don't have any friends except other people like you. And so he invites a bunch of other tax collectors. And then the rest of the group, he just describes it as sinners. So you can only imagine what that means. And Jesus goes. And the Pharisees come, and this is like final straw stuff. They're like, why does your rabbi, why does your leader hang out with people like that. And Jesus looks at him, he says, is a doctor sent to help the people who are well or the people who are sick? And they're like, well, sick people. I came as a doctor, not as a judge. In, In fact, and then he quotes Hosea. He said, that's why God said to you in Hosea, I don't demand sacrifice. I want mercy. See, Jesus basically looked at them. You make people jump to a bunch of hoops before they ever think they're right or good people. I just came as a doctor. I'm looking for people like this. These are my people. And and, you know, when I read that story in Matthew in it, Here's a question I ask myself. Do I look at people with the eyes of a judge or the eyes of a doctor? Because both see what's wrong. And let's face it, there's broken people in the world. But when you come with a heart of mercy, you recognize There's an answer for that brokenness. And the answer is not that I divide from you. The answer is not that I'm better than you. The answer is I recognize, you know what? I received mercy from Christ and I'd like you to receive it too. And that place that we should receive it the most, it should be in this place. This is our little expression of the kingdom of God on earth. Not just here, but in our homes and our neighborhoods, but as the church. And because we know that, it just changes everything. I'm going to close with the words of Wes Sealinger. He writes in his book, One Church from the Fence. Listen to his words. He says, I have spent long hours in the intensive care waiting room, watching with anguished people, listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without your companion of 30 years? The intensive care waiting room is different than any other place in the world. And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. The distinctions of race and class melt away. A person is a father first, a black man second. The garbage man loves his wife just as much as a university professor loves his. And everyone understands this. Each person pulls for everyone else. In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. Vanity and pretense vanish. The universe is focused on the doctor's next report. If only it will show improvement. Everyone knows that loving someone else is what life's all about. Long before we're in the intensive care waiting room, maybe we could learn to live like that. Because if, if any place should be the expression of that, it should be the church. Because every person here, you know in your heart, your brokenness. We all know our sinfulness. And we know there's a savior who meets us there. He doesn't leave us there, but he meets us there. Shouldn't that mercy that we've received be the attitude that pervades this place? And when we do that, when we model it, it's such a powerful witness because the rest of the world does not have that. And they are dividing over everything. If there was ever a time for the people of God to represent the kingdom of God because we've experienced the mercy of God, it's a time such as this but it calls for each one of us, even as we walk from this place. How are you gonna look at others? With the eyes of a judge or with the eyes of a doctor? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness, your mercy. We thank you for what we've experienced in Christ. Lord, I thank you for venture. I I, I love the people of this church. I love how they love each other. But we wanna love better. We wanna love like you do. Lord, we want this to be the environment and place that anybody walking in would feel welcome, that anybody walking in would, would recognize we are all the same people here, people who desperately needed Jesus and found healing and grace at the foot of his cross. Lord, as we go from this place, would you give us your eyes? Would we treat people the way you did? And would it be a witness to the world of the power of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.